0: Our first message this afternoon is from Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Hope That Is In You. Thank you, Ron. Did you, by a chance, happen to forget a key up here? Okay. I didn't know if that was... On sale or what here? Well, good afternoon. It's good to be here, uh, as it always is. And I'd like to start off today by kind of pointing out, as was already mentioned, uh, the title of this message today is The Hope That Is In You. And we're going to be going to 1 Peter, uh, the third chapter today. We're going to look at some things that Peter had to say in his letter to many different Jews and Gentiles that were spread out throughout the Roman Empire in regards to how to deal with when people come up to you and question your beliefs or want you to give an answer for, you know, why you believe what you do. As I was finishing up this message this morning, and maybe some of you are familiar with this, uh, I guess it's a publication. It's called The Watchtower, and it's put out by the Jehovah's Witnesses. And as I was finishing up my message this morning, I got a little ring on the doorbell and I opened it up and there was two individuals uh, and I knew immediately uh, who they were, not them personally, but what they were getting ready to talk about. And they asked me this question that was actually on this publication here, where can you find comfort? And so couched in that question was, or leading up to that question was, you know, the world is... It seems to be getting crazier, it's even crazier in other parts of the world, in, in America it's starting to get weird, is the word that this lady used. Uh, where do you find comfort? I mean, do you, some people go to the Bible, some people go to God, some people go to politics, and I thought, you've got to be kidding me. And so, I just immediately said, wow, it's interesting that you ask that, because I definitely go to God for comfort. In fact, that world that you're talking about, that, you know, that wonderful restored world, I firmly believe in that just like you do. And I started discussing about how I was actually from uh, what's considered an unorthodox belief system as well. Uh, that I did not observe Christmas or Easter and some of those traditional things. I'm not in any way, shape, or form uh, talking bad about those who choose to do that. But I started talking to him about the Sabbath, and I specifically started talking to him about the Holy Days. Because I said, you know what? What's interesting that you say that is, is that there's these seven Holy Days in the biblical account that is basically presented to us that sketch the outline of how those things that you're telling me is going to actually happen. And so I started with the Passover, and I said, you know, the Passover, you know, there's nothing more Christian the Passover itself, you know, the Passover lamb, Christ is our Passover lamb. All those little things, those little uh, things that we know uh, about the Passover story, all those have a relation to Jesus. And I said, that's a very easy and clear one. But, of course, all the other sevens uh, have a connection as well. And so it was actually a very good conversation, very nice. Uh, I don't know if they were a couple. I'm assuming that they were a couple. Uh, and they asked me the question, well, how do you engage with people that, for example, are from mainstream Christian belief systems? And I thought that was an interesting question because I can assume, because there's a lot of people, I'm sure, that whenever they knock on the door, they pretty much have red-flagged them and said, well, I'm not going to listen to anything they say. I don't agree with them, and they're wrong. They're a cult, and I'm just going to tell them I'm not interested. And so I essentially just let them know, hey, look, Every denomination of Christianity, every single belief system, there are people out there that are interested in learning more. There's people out there that are interested in going beyond just what their tradition has to offer. And so I just wanted to share that with you because I thought it was very interesting. And I think it's a shame that sometimes people are disrespectful to people that are considered, you know, fringe Christian groups like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, obviously, in our background, we have experienced some of the same things. Just because you don't agree with somebody doesn't mean that you cannot engage in a conversation with them. It doesn't mean that you cannot show Christ living in you. Because we are not to judge whether or not God's working a work in them. Now, do I believe and do we believe the teachings of the Jehovah's Witnesses by and large? Well, I'm sure there's some things that we could find common ground with. But there's a lot of things that we probably would not agree with. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that we have to change our beliefs just because we have a conversation with individuals that are not of like mind. In fact, one of the Christian principles, if you notice Jesus, is that he was totally different to those people that people considered on the fringes of society. Because he would engage with them. He would talk with them in meekness and in sincerity and in fear. And we're not going to mean fear of them as we're going to see In this message today so I just wanted to open with that we'll kind of come back to talk about how we engage with people a little bit later on but as my message is entitled as I mentioned the hope that is in you what hope lies in us let's just think about that the hope that is within us as Christians we are supposed to have a hope a hope that's way bigger than ourselves It's a hope that's way bigger than these walls. It's a hope that's way bigger than this state's state lines or this nation's national lines or borders. But it is a hope that affects every era of human beings on every part of this world. You know, in the beginning days of the Christian movement, the early Christians faced criticism and questioning on on almost all cultural fronts. From the very beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, he had opposition from both governmental authorities as well as Jewish leaders. In fact, Christianity was such a friend movement that many historians are very perplexed at how it even grew to be one of the largest religions of the entire world. And in fact, not just the largest religions of the modern entire world, but even just going back historically, that it actually became the officially sanctioned religion of the almighty Roman Empire. That we have all read about before, you know. There's an interesting passage in the Bible, uh, an interesting passage that's found in Acts, the 17th chapter, verse six. When the Jews at the city of Thessalonica commented on Christians being the ones who turned the world upside down, you know. And today, it's really hard sometimes to relate to some of those early Christians. You know, we don't face some of the same dynamics. You know, in a lot of ways, Western civilization has not experienced Christianity or living Christianity out like both people in the ancient world did, as well as people living in other parts of the world today, such as in Iraq or in Syria, or in Afghanistan, or in India even, or some China, Africa, some of these other places where Christianity is not the majority, but rather. Sometimes you have to be kind of quiet about what you believe if you don't want to have too much persecution. But despite this, we have learned something that persecution comes in many different forms. Yes, in America, right now, we don't have to face persecution of our life in danger. We don't have to face persecution where we're fearful that somehow physical damage or harm may come upon us. But there are other forms of persecution. And in recent years, there is a resurgence of criticism among both secular humanist uh, humanist scientists, as well as philosophers and political scientists and cultural leaders, who sometimes are in charge of basically leading a chant that speaks somewhere along the lines that Christianity must be wiped out, that all of our problems are because of this racist, uh, bigoted religion of Christianity. Now unfortunately, in some ways, the history as it has unfolded in Western society and civilization throughout the last 1500 years or so, there are some blames to be put on the way that certain people who so called them Christians acted and treated other individuals. In other words, does that mean that Christianity is a bigoted religion? Does that mean that Christianity is a religion of hate? Of course not but the way in which some people lived out their faith and used Christ, the their banter that they justified in doing, sometimes it is reasonable to see some people come to that conclusion, even though I do not in any way, shape, or form agree with that conclusion. So let's go to 1 Peter and let's look at chapter 3. Let's just pick it up in verse 13. We're going to read verses 13 through 16. And we're going to break this down. We're going to first look at the background. Then we're going to try to look at how to interpret Peter. And then we're going to look at a couple of things that he tells us to do. In 1 Peter, the third chapter, verse 13, he says, Breaking into context, and who is he who will harm you? If you become followers of what is good, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so to look at some background of this letter, this letter was written somewhere around the period of 62 to 64 AD, okay? Okay. And so that was in the later part of the first century. And traditionally, why we call it First Peter is that it is a tr- a traditionally attributed to the Apostle Peter. Now, most scholars believe that this was around the time of what was called the Great Fire of Rome that destroyed much of the city of Rome. Unfortunately for Christians or followers of the way or Jesus followers of that period of time, the Romans, including Nero himself, blamed the Christians for this fire. They were a scapegoat, so to speak. And so because of this, even though there was persecution in different pockets of the Roman world at this time, this basically created a resurgence of persecution on the Christians. When we read 1 Peter, that is essentially what he's talking about. How do we deal with the persecution that is coming upon us? Most likely, Peter wrote this letter from Rome himself. Now, the reason that he says, and if you did not know this, 1 Peter 5, verse 13, references Babylon as being the place in which Peter wrote this letter. Now, that's very unlikely that he actually wrote this letter in the ancient Mesopotamian region of Babylon. The reason being is because Babylon, during this time, according to Josephus, was almost deserted completely. Not very many people living there. It was a city of the past. The Roman Empire uh, had jurisdiction, not, well, did not have jurisdiction over that region. Previously, Alexander the Great had obtained jurisdiction over that region. Uh, and then later, at around uh, the first part of the second century, Trajan, the emperor Trajan of the Roman Empire, visited that city. And it was com- almost completely deserted. And so it's very unlikely that Peter was probably at that location. Most people, and I'm talking about historians and scholars, think that this is a coded allusion to Rome itself. Babylon, the epitome of paganism, the epitome of like the the, the culture that's at at odds with the, the ways of God. He is now likening to Babylon, Rome that is, because of all the things that of course are going on in Rome. The destination was the brethren, probably Jews and Gentiles. Uh, that were from various regions in Asia Minor. Today, it's called Turkey, that little place that we called Asia Minor, or Anatolia back in this period of time. We're called, you know, Pontus was a region, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Uh, so that is what Peter says that he is writing to. And there was a large s- stretch of persecution that took place in that northern region of Turkey. And I say Turkey because that's what we call it today. And some of the key themes in the epistle are... Number one, suffering for righteousness' sake and how to conduct ourselves for holy living. How to live out a holy life. And so if we look at the context of 1 Peter 3, we see that focus on holy living in the midst of persecution. You know, verse 13 alludes to Jesus' eighth beatitude. Where Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven, is what Matthew says. Because the kingdom of heaven is the reference that's used all throughout Matthew. Verse 15 tells us that in the midst of this adversity, we are to sanctify Christ in our hearts and still be ready to give a reason for our hope. So those are the two things that we are going to look at today. The idea of basically living a holy life in the midst of persecution, and being ready to give a defense, to give a reason, to give an answer to those who want to know about what we believe. Whether it is in a persecution sense or whether it is just in an informational sense from someone coming to us wanting to know what it is that we believe and why. And so if we look at verse 13 and 14, I want to read that again. It says, who is he, who, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. And so essentially, Peter's telling us right here, the key to suffering, the key to getting through it is to be a lover, to be a seeker of goodness. That sounds kind of strange. We're going to get to that. An actual other translation, New American Standard Bible translation, translates this passage as if you prove zealous for what is good. If you prove zealous for what is good. So the idea that Peter is speaking of here is that zeal and enthusiastic strive for goodness. And we actually see how Peter defines the characteristics of goodness. Because you can say, what do you mean, Peter? What's goodness? Goodness? I mean, that can mean so many different things. Well, in verses 8 through 12, you don't have to turn there. He brings out these characteristics that he qualifies as goodness. And he actually alludes to these qualifications or these characteristics rather as being virtues that people have that most people are reluctant to harm. In other words, most people don't mess with you when you have these certain characteristics. When you are benevolent towards people, when you seek the good of others, when you seek peace and you run from evil and you are courteous. And so in a nutshell, Peter is saying, hey look. Most people, if you do these things, if you are righteous, if you live out a life that, you know, that has these characteristics, you're probably not going to have as much trouble as if you did not have those characteristics. But in verse 14, ah, of course, he admits that despite you having this goodness, persecution still will abound. Despite this goodness, suffering and persecution will still come in this world. As a direct result of our faith. And that is what Peter is talking about. He's talking about persecution that is a direct result of this qualifications. Not qualifications. I keep saying that the characteristics of a Christian. The lifestyle of a Christian. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, saying, You are blessed. And do not be afraid of the threats, nor be troubled. Now that's a really difficult thing. I mean, this is... Curious, most people would look at this and say, well, how in the world does a person do that? How in the world are we blessed when we are persecuted? And even further from that, how can we not have fear when we are persecuted? Well, there's two real simple reasons that might seem, well, easier said than done. That we are blessed for persecution's sake. Number one, we are blessed because we belong to God. Regardless of what people do to us, we belong to God. And we also are blessed because we are certain that we will be vindicated by God's promises in his kingdom. We have to remember that beatitude, if we believe Jesus, blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew, the fifth chapter, verse 10. But in the last part of verse 14, Peter admonishes them not to fear this persecution, And it is related to the first part about the blessing above, which we just saw. To This blessing that we have, that we are blessed when we are persecuted. Now, to understand this, we must consider where Peter gets this wording here. Isaiah, the eighth chapter, let's turn there real quick. We're going to read a couple passages. I'm going to give you a little context for this. That idea of fearing God first, not fearing those who are coming upon us with persecution, is rooted in an interesting story that takes place where as Isaiah is alluding to in Isaiah in, in his book Isaiah you see there was this time period where King Ahaz of Judah he was asked by the kings of both the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria who's they have made an alliance Syria and Israel had made an alliance because of this ensuing threat of the Assyrians to the north. And so they thought to themselves, well, hey, let's go down and let's even strengthen and solidify our alliance. And let's get King Ahaz and Judah on board as well. Well, King, king Ahaz refuses the alliance. And so what happens next is, is basically the king of Syria and the king of Israel, that alliance decides that they're going to come down. And they're going to try to basically put Ahaz off the throne and put a cup, puppet king in their place. A king that would you know, follow along with what they wanted them to do and form that alliance. And so out of fear of what was ensuing, out of fear of what was coming, Ahaz decides, you know what? They want me to align with them. I don't want to. And so what I'll do is I'll beat them to the punch. I'll go and make an alliance with Assyria. They're afraid of Assyria and that's why they want me to align with them. I'll just go make an alliance with Assyria. And so in Isaiah, the eighth chapter, verse 12 and 13, in response to this, Isaiah says, Do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of the threats, nor be troubled. Because Isaiah was imploring them, was appealing to them, don't do this. Have faith in God. This is a part of God's plan, God can protect you. Do not fear the king of Israel and the king of Assyria that's coming against you. But King Ahaz didn't listen. He rather trust in a foreign power, a temporal empire, than God himself. Verse 13 says, The Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. So essentially, Peter is getting into this as saying, basically, don't fear people. Don't fear empires, don't fear political systems, rather fear God who is eternal, not those things who are temporal. And so if we think about it, to the natural person fear is a normal response to when a person experiences persecutions or threats. Even we as Christians know it is a struggle not to cave into this normal emotion in times of trouble. And so we can ask the question, what do people get afraid of? Or what do they fear? In a lot of ways, fear is rooted in the anxiety of losing something, losing our possessions, losing our safety, or security, or our health, or our lives, or our pleasures, or our comfortability. Those are the things that bring about fears. But all of these things are temporal. All of these things, if we set them in our hearts as the number one thing, of course, we are going to have anxiety. Because we know, in the back of our mind, they are temporal. They are vulnerable. And at any time, they can be taken away, no matter what happens. But as Peter says, and he's going to tell us this in a minute, sanctify Christ in our hearts as the center of importance in our lives. If we do that, that's not temporal. That's eternal. And that has eternal, God-guaranteed security. And so this brings us to our next verse, which is our main verse. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, which says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And just a note on that, earlier manuscripts, the better manuscripts, actually has Christ. And so, sanctify God, sanctified Christ. Just to let you know, that's why I said, it said sanctify Christ. It means the same thing, essentially. But sometimes, later on in history, we do have manuscripts that we can go back and we can look at, and we can see that... There might have been a change in a word. In your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. With meekness and fear. And so the first part of this verse is based on what Peter just mentioned. Setting Christ apart in our hearts. Setting Christ apart in our hearts. The heart is the sanctuary of true conversion. And also the result of true worship. The heart is the sanctuary of true conversion, and as a result is the sanctuary of true worship as well. We even see that Jesus mentions in Matthew 6, the 21st verse, For where your treasure is, there your heart also will be. And so looking at this, we see very simply that that's the first point. That's how we deal with persecution. Easier said than done, but this is what Peter has outlined for us. And this is what he's trying to get across to those who are living among persecution. A word on persecution for us today doesn't always come in the form of someone wanting to kill us. Obviously, some people in the world do have to deal with that. But it comes in many different ways. It can come very subtly. People trying to maybe recreate. This image of if you are a part of this belief system, maybe this is what you believe, or this is the way you think. That maybe it's about people framing you, and I'm not just saying you personally, but just Christianity in such a way that Christianity, really at the heart and the soul of it, is just a bigoted religion, a religion that uh, is for hate and not for peace. And we know that, unfortunately, that has been the case to some extent, but we know this and of Christianity that the intention is peace the intention is righteousness the intention if you read all of the prophets their primary focus was justice was not forgetting the ones who are part of the friends of society not forgetting the ones who are persecuted because this is a period of time that's much different from our own. In some ways it's similar but in some ways it's different where you have people that would have the sole authority to do all things that they wanted to do Okay? And so the verse tells us two things in in, in chapter 3 verse 15. The first thing it tells us is to be ready to give a defense for the faith that you hold. For that hope that is in you. Now the word here for defense is the Greek word apologia. Now maybe you know where that word is connected to. You see there is a branch of theology. That is focused on defending or devoted to defending the Christian worldview and we call apologetics Maybe you've heard that term before and this is where the study of apologetics comes from this word apologia the defense Now as Christianity was a new movement in the first century They faced opposition on several fronts as we mentioned in the introduction unbelieving Jews we can look at the Sanhedrin acts we can even look at Paul There's a possibility. We know he was a persecutor of Christianity. Uh, It's part of the story, part of his beginning. Uh, But he might have even been a part of the Sanhedrin. We don't know that. There are some terminology that's used by Paul when he talks about I casted my lot. That could have been a reference to I was a part of the Sanhedrin and it was an actual official vote. My agreements with certain things to happen, such as what happened to Stephen. We see persecution, or rather we see scoffing from the pagans. Pagan Greeks and the philosophers uh, throughout Thessalonica, throughout all these different cities in Asia Minor that Paul went to, that of course was Greek and Jew, and they thought this was crazy, what Paul was preaching, and some of them actually tried to stone, that would be the Jews who were trying to stone them, but of course Romans during that period of time, they would persecute you if they felt that you were a threat to order, because the Roman Empire put an emphasis on the rule of law and order. All right, governmental officials, we saw that uh, with Jesus himself, even though the story has a lot more to say than just a governmental official persecuting Christians uh, during this period of time. But we also see, again, governmental officials uh, are not necessarily always the nicest to those who are Christian in the New Testament. And of course, even heretics within the church, they had to defend the faith from. Many of the letters, even in the general epistles, like the one we are in right now, all the way through Paul, they had to deal with fringe movements within Christianity that were taking the gospel and subverting it and perverting it into another message. Okay, So, Christianity, we know, in the first century, had to face opposition on several fronts. and Today, we have opposition on several fronts. We have opposition with maybe a distorted narrative of what Christianity is actually truly about. Uh, We have opposition because somebody that claims Christ somewhere in another state did something, and some people just obviously put the pieces pieces together and automatically assume that that's how everyone feels about uh, particular issues. And our answer must be reasonable. A little part. Be ready to give a reason. That word reasonable is interesting because it's actually the word logos, or logos as some people pronounce it. And that, according to William Barclay, who is a famous commentator, uh, had a commentary series. On 1 Peter, right here, this word logos, he defines this word as reasonable and intelligent statement of someone's position. A reasonable and intelligent statement of someone's position. So as humans, we have been made in God's image. We have been endowed with the ability to think rationally, to have reason, to create. Uh, We literally have been given that characteristic of God by God. He expects us to use it. Galileo, one of the famous scientific revolutionaries, whenever he was claiming that no, the earth is not the center of the universe, but rather the sun, and the sun moves, and the earth or not sun doesn't move, but the earth moves, he basically said that the same God who endowed me with reason, I do not believe that he wants me to forego it. And so we know that God wants us to use our reasons. So what did the Biblical writers themselves, what did they appeal to for their, their defense? We know first they'd appeal to the Old Testament or what they would have called the Bible because that's all they had. Some people call it the Hebrew Bible, we know, call it the Old Testament. The apostles appealed to the scriptures, the Old Testament, for the justification for their hope. Jesus himself would appeal to the Bible for the things that he would do, and show them that it was consistent with what the Bible had to say, with what the Old Testament had to say. Of course, the apostles themselves would appeal to the Hebrew Bible or to the Old Testament, simply because showing that Jesus fulfilled particular prophecies. But the number one thing I believe, and this is a personal belief of mine, that I think that uh, is New Testament, is that the number one thing that we appeal to as Christians for why we follow Christ is the resurrection of Jesus. For the resurrection of Jesus, all of Christianity is based upon, every single bit of it. It was the resurrection of Christ itself that people, the apostles in the early church, that's what they rested their case on. Even themselves, they thought that it was gonna go down differently. They thought that the Messiah and the idea of Messiah was totally different. From what, it actually, from what actually happened. But they had to come back. They had to realize. We have to adjust our thinking. Because this guy died. We saw it. And now he lives. And we saw him ascend into heaven. So I've harped on that before in other messages. But it is the, basically the crux of all of Christianity. Is the resurrection. And in fact I believe very very vigorously. That it is historically verifiable. The resurrection of Jesus is historically verifiable. We also can sometimes use cultural distinctives. Let's think about that. Paul himself, he went to Mars Hill. And he went to talk to all the different philosophers. Each other. And one of the things that he did actually, if you read that. And you actually, we've had historians look at this. Is he actually quoted a pagan poet. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that very correctly, but he used that as a bridge. He wasn't endorsing this pagan poet. He wasn't endorsing necessarily the beliefs of of paganism or the Greek philosophers, but rather he was using something that those philosophers would have known and would have grown up knowing, a simple, basic understanding, and using that as a bridge to introduce Jesus and the gospel of Christ and the gospel of the kingdom of God. So, in order to do these things, in order to give it offense, it has to be reasonable, for it to be reasonable, and for it to be accurate, and for it to be truthful. We have to know the reasons, very simply, for why we have the hope that we have. We have to study the word of God. We have to be able to tell people when they come to us, well, why do you believe in God? Why do you believe in Christ? And why do you not believe you know, in the Book of Mormon? Why do you not believe in the uh, Catechism? Or why do you not believe in uh, the Protestant Reformation writings and what they had to say about Paul and what they had to say about you know, the Paul doing away with the law and things like that? We have to understand the reasons that we believe what we believe. And our last little point here, make your answer Christ-like with meekness and fear. And I believe that is synonymous with saying Christ-like. We've never seen an example of someone giving an offense or someone giving an answer with meekness and fear better than Jesus himself throughout all the Gospels, especially even when he was up on trial. Christ is the epitome of that. We don't bully people into believing something. You know, we don't do it with an ignorant or belittling spirit. We don't do it with a brash tongue. We don't do it with a self-righteous attitude, but rather we do it with a righteous, God-fearing, loving attitude. Remember, it's not up to us to convert someone. You know, one interesting thing that I thought was, and it was some of you might have heard of Charles Stanley before. He's a popular uh, preacher that, you know, a lot of times just preaches on Christian living. I, I personally have not listened to him a lot, but I know a lot of people get a lot of things out of him. Uh, About just his basic Christian living uh, things that he teaches on. But one of the things I heard him say one time, uh, whenever I was actually watching one of his shows, was that the most bitterest arguments that he had ever had was over the Word of God. I think some of us could relate to that. Some of that's good to an extent because we're passionate people. We're passionate about what we believe. We're passionate about this Word of God. We believe this and we should with our whole lives. But sometimes I think it can basically, if it's not oriented correctly, it can result in us being very un like as we discuss those things. And so the last thing I want to leave us with is we do it with meekness and fear, with reverence, with reverence to God and respect to the other person. But the number one thing that we witness people with is the witness of true conduct, the witness of true conduct. You know, a lot of times, the gospel, it's not necessarily told that gets people to believe in it, but it's acted out. You know, the early church, there was an actual early Christian Roman writer that said that the seed of the, of the church, the seed, the result of the church, the reason the church blew up was because of the persecution they endured. And that sounds really bizarre, but hear what he was saying. He was essentially saying that people would look at these Christians and they were getting ready to be put to death. They were treated horribly for what they believed. They refused to worship the emperor and recant their belief system. In the midst of this persecution, onlookers would see their faithfulness to their belief and it would put them in awe. It would make them curious. Wow, what a faith this individual has. That in the midst of All of these things happening to them, they are still staying faithful to their belief. And it would make them curious, and they would go, and they would learn about this. And it it, it made people question, well, maybe we're not the right ones. Maybe we're on the bad end on this issue. And so the seed of the Christian church, and of course that's just a, it's not from the Bible, it's just a quote I think is interesting. But anyways, the last thing in verse 16, after he says, Give a reason for your hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Verse 16 says, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And there is no doubt that walking the walk of the Christian life is the best offense against those who object to Christianity. I think that it's been one of the best offenses against Christianity. People not walking the faith, of the true faith of Christianity. So. As Christians, we have to remember we represent Christ. We're ambassadors of Christ. We've heard that a thousand times before. We have to understand, and we have to ask ourselves, does our conduct prove our convictions or claims of convictions thereof accurate or genuine? Does the way we live our life prove that we genuinely are Christians, and we genuinely are having Christ work in us, and we are reflecting Jesus? And so in conclusion, seek goodness. To alleviate any unnecessary persecution or criticisms or shames on the name of Christ. Hold God as above all things by sanctifying Christ in our hearts, showing him as our true treasure. By doing this, we will be equipped and ready to give an answer to those who ask a reason for our hope. Also by doing this, we will know know what we believe and will be in a position for God working through the Spirit to help us with the appropriate answer. And last but not least, we will be living a life that is worthy of the calling that we are called to, and true reflectors of Christ's righteousness and light to the world, and in a much better position to be a witness or an ambassador for Christ.